It's a cool, crisp autumn day. I'm standing outside the Clearview neighborhood in Red Deer, looking through a chain-link fence at the property that used to be known as Michener Center, where there used to be dozens of large brick buildings. Now only piles of dirt and gravel remain. Streets and sidewalks are torn up. Office buildings and residences torn down. Even the water tower, visible for miles around, is gone. Backhoes, dump trucks, and earth movers crisscross along dirt roads, moving building materials and stones across a huge area. Three years ago, I'd take the path past the buildings as a shortcut when biking to work. Even then, a large fence separated the abandoned community from the outside. Broken windows were boarded over, and do not trespass signs were everywhere. A few years before, I had taught my kids to drive down the little streets of the makeshift village, fit with crosswalks, stop signs, and pedestrian lights. Fifty years ago, my grandparents worked as psych nurses in this very place, where at the time over a thousand patients lived and learned. Alberta in the 60s, 70s, and 80s had more patients institutionalized per capita than any other province in Alberta. Michener Center was a place where many of these people lived. I've always been interested in Deer Home because of the connection to my own family, because of the connection to the growth of the city of Red Deer, and more recently because of the idea of institutions, institutionalization, and a rethinking of how people can be part of community. It's not a secret that Michener Center's legacy also included archaic and dehumanizing practices that needed to end. Abuse, neglect, even forced sterilization were a part of the culture here. The proverbs say, A good reputation and respect are worth much more than silver and gold. How do we measure the reputation of a community? Can a city or town have values? Whose job is it to uphold them? When we pull down the walls of a mental institution or a residential school, do we convince ourselves that we have undone what went on behind them? It's not hard to imagine that there is more than dust and rubble buried in the piles that are left behind. This episode of The Harmonious Gentleman is brought to you by our friends at Blind Man Brewing, makers of Central Alberta's best craft beer, purveyors of delicious tacos, and hosts of all kinds of harmonious fun. They don't like to brag about it, but they've won Brewery of the Year in Alberta and Best in Show at the Canadian Brewing Awards. Head to Lacombe and check them out. podcast episodes were the number of candidates that officially declared themselves and registered for the Toronto mayoral race this spring, you'd know this has to be episode 102 of The Harmonious Gentleman. Guys, there were 102 people who registered for the mayoral race in the spring of 2023 in Toronto. I I knew that because when we were there, there was like a poster downtown that had all the names on it. (laughs) One poster? It was like a big sort size of thing. eight font. <laughs> but my question for you guys is who won? So good question. This article probably has it in there, but I don't know. I believe it was the late Jack Layton's wife, Olivia Chow. Oh, that's that's who won. There was posters, so that's not really. So were you there after the election? Or? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was in July, so it already happened. Go. Yeah. Cool. It's a lot of people. Yeah, that's a lot. How's everyone doing tonight? Yeah, really good, except. Chris, your neighborhood, a lot of people have Christmas lights on already. So I don't think they're actually Christmas lights. They're just lights now. Just decorations. They have them Halloween colors, potentially. What color I saw one that was definitely Halloween. Yeah. Then. These are these expensive lights that are installed under the eaves. Kind of, They look beautiful, but it costs about $2,500 to get them put in. Hmm. Really? Like, I would never do that. And they're year-round? Yeah. Okay. My neighbor has... Uh, they just finished building their house across the street here and he has the nicest ones I've seen. We don't need to go too long on this, but I definitely (laughs) saw some Christmas decorations. Oh. And and there's lots of Halloween ones too. Yeah. Which I know you love, Chris. I know you love decorating for the spirit of Halloween. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Have we talked about this? Can we, that should have been my episode. Scratch this. Yeah. Cold open, I want to redo. No, I love the cold open, Chris. Mm. I've been thinking about that area of Red Deer for years Mm -hmm. and I am fascinated by it and learning about definitely more of its history and also what they're doing there right now. So we're in this series of um, everybody kind of gets their own episode and we're exploring mm-hmm. things in Red Deer or Alberta a bit. Mm-hmm. And so I picked, uh, as you've already heard, Mitchener Center 
uh, because yeah, I, my family has a bit of a connection there. But well, I don't want to wait around too long. Tied no. to you? No, not at all. Is this going to be about ghosts? Let's put a pin in that. <laughs> but maybe you can. I can tell you a bit of a story about that. Okay, that's sort of connected. What a tease! Let's do it. Cool. This segment is brought to you by Cilantro and Chive. Delicious and creative dishes, a huge variety of locally crafted drinks, and building community in Red Deer and Lacombe. They're the gents' favorite place to grab a bite. So if you've lived in Red Deer for any length of time, you would know something about the Michener Center. If um, you're thinking about like where and what it is, currently Michener Center is a curling rink and aquatic center. But it's also um, some office buildings at the top of 55th and where 55th Street turns into 40th Avenue. Um, there's a lot of uh, residential buildings where um, patients are living in homes in that Michener area in fourplexes and houses are kind of around um, where the swimming pool is. So that's sort of maybe what you think of Michener Center. And that's basically what it is today. But if you were to follow 55th Street from the top of Michener Hill, where the Red Deer Graveyard is, and go uh, east on that road, you would pass a bunker. I'm not sure what they did or do there. Uh, The graveyard would be on the north side of the road. And then you'd get to a place which is now fenced off. Um, and kind of there's green space there and lots of paths and walking areas and ponds. Uh, but that was called North Michener. So that's where a lot of buildings. And in the introduction, I talked about all these buildings that were knocked down. That uh, North Michener area was where is where a lot of residents lived. In 1923, the Provincial Training School was opened in Red Deer. It was renamed Michener in 1977. It aimed to provide care and training to facilitate the integration of individuals with disabilities back into the community after educating them. Uh, Spoiler, not many people were reintroduced to the community. It cared for both developmentally disabled children with intellectual abilities, things like autism, FASD, Down syndrome, cerebral palsy. Uh, and intellectual disabilities, so people who had an IQ below 70, and psychiatrically diagnosed children. So that would be people with who had gone to a, a doctor and had been diagnosed uh, with a mental illness. At its peak in 1965, Alberta had f- Alberta, so the whole province, had 5,980 beds occupied by people who were not allowed to leave an institution. So they were institutionalized either their families had uh, volunteered them to be there some of these uh, kids were wards of the state so the um, guardianship was actually given over to the province Um, and some were given over by the justice system to avoid incarceration in prisons and were placed uh, in these places so at its biggest Michener Center had I think 1700 residents and over 2000 staff in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, it was Red Deer's biggest employer. So more people worked at Michener Center than any other facility or institution in the city, which is pretty significant. And I think in the 40s, 50s, like Red Deer was around 30,000 and grew to about 40,000 people. And as many as 2,000 of those people worked at the facility. That's, that's pretty big. So the best parts about Michener were that families who had nowhere else to turn had somewhere for their children to go. I think in a lot of cases, people were desperate and they um, didn't know what to do or how to care for their kids. And Michener stepped in to do that or the provincial training school. It, I, I had a chance to go to the Red Deer archives and they have a lot of information about Michener Center. So there's people there who bring things out, things like maps and um, documents that you can read about the center. And it was interesting to see kind of the schematics of like how the buildings were laid out, the labels of things like the chicken coop and the farm and the vegetable garden and the the cow barns. And so um, young people were given jobs. There was a mechanic shop. Um, They lived there, so they were there all the time, but they also produced food that was sold. They had markets, so they had an income kind of. And uh, so there were some things that were some kind of interesting and and neat about that too. 
Nurses, doctors, orderlies, social workers, a lot of them were loving, caring, and helpful people. My own grandparents worked there for, I think, 15 years. And uh, they came from Holland. One was a nurse, the other a police officer in Holland. And when they moved here, they became both of them psych nurses. So they worked at Alberta Hospital in Pinoka and then Deer Home in Red Deer um, for a lot of years and had a lot of stories about um, the clients that they worked with and the people that they served. So I know that there were many, many good people who worked there and cared about the people they worked with. The Provincial Training School's mission was to rehabilitate people in order to return them to the community. Unfortunately, that was uncommon. Um, Many people who went there lived there until they died, and many people died there. So that's kind of the best uh, of what Michener was. The worst um, is much worse than that. Electro convulsive therapy some maybe you've heard of electroshock therapy it's kind of how i thought of it was commonly used in institutions in the 20th century there was this line of thinking with scientists that um, epilepsy and schizophrenia were like opposite disorders so that if you shocked a person's brain enough and caused an epileptic seizure a person who was schizophrenic would be healed or like almost forced into a healing process so it was very common for electroconvulsive therapy to be used. Eugen- uh, there was a eugenics program that Alberta used, and um, it led to the compulsory sterilization of the, quote, feeble-minded, unquote. Germany used these same guidelines to kill the mentally ill in the 30s and 40s, and Red Deer was using them to uh, sterilize mostly women against their will, sometimes without parent uh, knowledge of yeah, up to 2,000 people in Red Deer were forcibly sterilized. Individual rights are often suppressed in institutions and by the government, by the state. And in order to do that, and the reason to do that is to bypass certain legal standards. Sometimes designating certain social dissidents as unwell gives you an opportunity to incarcerate people. I don't know if much of that was happening in Alberta, but certainly countries like China, Romania, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, the Soviet Union were doing that with people in the 20th century is labeling people a certain way. And that label was like a considered a psychiatric disorder and so then they could be institutionalized so in a way those institutions were just kind of another arm of of prisons and at Michener it was known that the timeout rooms were really um, traumatizing for patients so a concrete room often with nothing in it but a drain so that if people were locked up for long periods of time and they were soiling themselves they could kind of wash the room down afterwards Uh, but they were locked up often because they're very difficult patients to work with and that was kind of the only way they knew how to whatever not support them but deal with them I guess you would say so those are just some facts about Michener I guess my one well what are your thoughts on that or how much do you know about Michener what do you what did you know about it I didn't I didn't know a whole lot I don't think anything that, yeah, a lot of those things I maybe would have assumed, some of them anyway. Um, the numbers were kind of su- surprising to me, kind of staggering how many people were there institutionalized and employed. And I'm I'm assuming that these facilities were common to the country. Sort of every major city would have, what was, it, what was the original name of it? The Provincial Training School. Right. So that those were common yeah. for the time. Um, was Michener, or was that one, was it any larger than the average facility? Yeah, you know? it looks like, um, I kind of have a few charts here that I found in some, um, an older book that's just about institutionalization, the history of it in Canada. And Quebec, Alberta, and um, I think it's Newfoundland, but it might be Nova Scotia, seem to do it more per capita than the other provinces. Okay. Yeah. So in 1965, Alberta had basically 6,000 beds dedicated to well helping would would be the words they used but Mm -hmm. uh, people that couldn't leave the institution so in a province that wasn't very big 4.1 percent of the population were yeah so that they use this rate it's called the rate per population of people who are in yeah incarcerated is the word i use now but it isn't the word institutionalized sure yeah um out of a hundred thousand like it's those are pretty big numbers so yeah um, Alberta's had Alberta had the highest rate of their population 
Wow. Institutionalized. My other, in the 60s and 70s. I'm not sure if you know this. My other question would have been the average age of someone who was there. Were they mostly younger people? I mean, you mentioned that well, someone they, they spent their whole there. life there. Yeah. yeah. I think once they got there, they often stayed, and mm-hmm. but they typically accepted them as children. Mm-hmm. But there were there was an adult um, care home okay. as well. Yeah. So they could accept adults too. So there's a few books that have been written by former residents or family members of residents, some in light of the sterilization that happened. Uh, one book's called A Special Hell, and it's... I couldn't read the whole thing. It was too... Hmm. too sad but um just lots of stories of um people who remember their siblings being you know taken by their parents or or parents who didn't think they had any other options so they were encouraged to do that but also some stories of families who really fought for michener to stay open so when it was closed i think in 2013 people really wanted it to remain open because it was the only option they had and they thought doing a great mm-hmm. job for their families and certainly over like between the 60s and 2013 a lot changed in terms of how patients were cared for um and so they weren't doing things like i think by 1972 the eugenic the sterilization had ended mm-hmm. um, but even for it to last that long is kind of surprising it is surprising yeah i i grew up in red deer too and knew a lot of what you said i vaguely it was vaguely familiar but the like you said graham just the the scope and the size of it was kind of surprising and then the i guess the you didn't get too specific into like stories or anything but Mm -hmm. i started thinking about Mm -hmm. the personal side of it and um i guess that part was kind of hitting me yeah just the size of it and then that there were some pretty atrocious things happening. And you know of some of those stories, Tyler? No, but I, I'm just, my just mind like was going there, like just imagining, like. yeah, that those stories, just I guess being aware that those stories do exist because yeah. those are real people who were sterilized or underwent shock therapy. Like growing up here, you kind of knew of this vague history of this yeah. place. And I made the comments about it being haunted like as a kid like you just that's kind of what i thought about it's up by the cemetery it's like a yeah we don't really talk about it very much but so it's a really interesting thing that you dove into remember that when i moved out here whatever 11 years ago when we would bike around the city remember the first time we biked through that area it was like what is this place it's it's huge yeah like mm-hmm. it's like this little town almost yeah up no, on the really hill was. beautiful location yeah the grounds the trails the trees the um, the Carrywood Nature Center trail right behind it. Mm-hmm. I remember just being a little perplexed by it for a while. Like, what is this place that just it's like a in yeah. the corner of it's the like city. a movie like, set or well, something? That's what, what it felt like thinking, for sure. Yeah. For, for sure, like a movie. that's what I said. Probably said many times. Um, yeah, so I, that's why I'm, like, I'm glad that to to hear more about it. I mean, it's interesting. My my grandparents, like I said, and I I never knew them when they worked there. Like by the time I came around they had retired already uh, but i had heard stories and met lots of people like oh you're a cumin you are you related to mckeel and sophia i worked for them they were my you know charge nurse or whatever you'd call it at michener and they they my grandparents had fond recollections of the people they worked with and believe that the people they were caring for um they were serving like th- that was for sure true for them mm-hmm. my dad worked there as an orderly in university and then my brothers had a snow removal contract. So I would help them shovel snow early mornings of when, so this was probably 20 years ago, maybe 15 years ago. And we would be up between 4.30 and 5 a.m. in the winter to shovel the sidewalks in there. And I can only, when you say it was haunted, the only time in my life I've had like that sort of a feeling like, I think this place is haunted, were two different times at Michener when I was by myself clearing the snow and just feeling like there's a spirit about this place. That's the only way I can explain it. I don't even know what that really means, except Mm -hmm. I would say there was. (laughs) (laughs) So when you were looking this stuff up, Chris, and researching it, what surprised you? Um, Well, so here's kind of where I want to go as we're talking about Mm -hmm. this is, is there a, you know, what happens when a institution like that believes they're doing what's right and then things in community or in society change and there's pressures to kind of say hey we don't 
this isn't how we take care of people anymore or what you're doing actually isn't helpful. Um, like if my grandparents heard me talking about this, like this, they're both passed away. Would they be offended? Like, Mm -hmm. do they believe what they did was in the best interest of their patients all the time? Yeah. Um, and is it like my 21st century, whatever you call it, sensibilities, that's not the right word. Yeah. Um, coming in that saying, Hey, like what, what happened there was bad. We shouldn't have institutions. Right. So I'm curious what you guys think of that. This segment is brought to you by the King's University in Edmonton, Alberta, offering an exceptional liberal arts education from a Christian perspective. King's degree programs integrate internships, work learning, study abroad experiences, and research opportunities. The King's University, bright hope for tomorrow. So if we think of Red Deer and Michener Center and maybe institutions present day, in 2013, Michener Center's institutional facilities were permanently closed. So there are still um, group homes and residences that Michener Center operates and that adults and children live in. And uh, so if you go to the pool, you'll often see clients who are kind of hanging out there and might live in the homes nearby. But the actual institution, the provincial training school, that village that we talked about doesn't even actually exist anymore. It's been raised to the ground. It was controversial at the time because by then institutionalization wasn't a government or cultural idea, but rather families who wanted residential care were seeking help. And Michener's residential programs were providing quality care for residents with very severe psychological and developmental needs. There's an article called Why We Shouldn't Institutionalize the Mentally Ill, written in Psychology Today Canada by a woman named Carolyn Reinack Wolf. She's a mental health attorney. And she says, today, federal and state laws uphold the fundamental right of competent adults to refuse mental health treatment. Such statutes set an extremely high bar for any kind of involuntary commitment or care. They require a hospital to obtain a court order to administer treatment over a patient's objection. So we work in education. If a student were to, um, like somebody under the age of 18, I guess I should say, it doesn't have to be a student, were to require some kind of care. Um, So there are things like programs like PCHAD, you've probably heard of, when students are maybe addicted to drugs and need like a in-house residential program. There are other things like that for sexual abuse survivors and that kind of thing. They actually need a court order to be signed for the government to be their ward for you know, a week or two weeks. Like it's a big Mm. deal now to institutionalize somebody or to, to have a residential program to support them. Like a really big deal. It's, it's not willy nilly that they, they hand those things out. Uh, So Carolyn Reinack Wolf, her claim is that North American as a whole needs to devote real funding to early intervention, long-term treatment, housing alternatives, and community programs for those with serious mental health diagnoses. So she doesn't claim that those people don't exist anymore. Um, But maybe you've had experiences where you're talking to other people who say things like, you know, the state of classrooms right now, it seems like there's all kinds of impacted kids in our classrooms. Those kids didn't like exist when I was a kid. Actually, they did. They were institutionalized. So even the threshold for academic, um, uh, a level of a 70 IQ, like those kids would be in K&E classes now and, Mm -hmm. you know, programs in regular high school. Yeah. And in back in the day, they could have been in a residential program in an institution. It's kind of hard for me to sort of make that connection. It It freaks me out to think about what the bar was in the 50s and who was making the decisions like so in in our schools also in some schools would have like a congregated program we used to call them specialized programming with students who might be severely impacted with something like asd or fasd and so autism or fetal Mm -hmm. alcohol spectrum disorder but um those kids are almost always living with their parents and they're coming to a regular school they just Mm -hmm. might be you know in class with kids that have a similar profile to them sure. during the day sure you a little earlier you asked about oh thinking back on systems that we've put in place um did they mean mean well or did they think that was the best mm-hmm. 
that they have the the best intentions and I, I like to think yes that whoever's signing their kid up for a program I don't know if that makes sense yeah yeah um, essentially they, that is what happened yeah like they do think that is the right thing to do yeah I, I want to believe that but I also think that have like that without the state like I like that the state has increased the threshold because I think we are as par- like parents or people maybe too weak to make those calls ourselves hmm. I don't know just thinking about like I can just imagine when you first asked I was like yeah of course everyone thought they were doing the right thing but now when you're talking about how the th- like about the threshold changing I was saying about if the threshold's low enough you could literally I can just hear people saying oh sign me up that sounds great <laughs> you yeah. know like you'll take my you'll take this kid off my hands or you'll take this student out of my classroom so I don't know I've I've in the last five minutes even like mm. flip-flopped on how mm. how I feel about that question you asked mm-hmm. um, one of the things and and the, I asked that kind of knowing what I thought of the answer already because the superintendent who was a, a medical doctor and a psychiatrist of dear home early on when it was still uh, the provincial training school when they started to develop their eugenics program he was he had the final call of who should be sterilized and his process i was reading was often a number of questions that they asked the patient themselves so they would they would ask a few questions and determine if that person would be a candidate for sterilization and sometimes it was in the case of low iq sometimes it was if they had like a diagnosis and sometimes if it was like a girl who was sexually promiscuous that those kinds of those would be reasons to sterilize the people mm-hmm. and so he was often making those decisions on his own without parental input if these kids were under 18 and when i think of that then i think well I don't think he's doing things for the good of anybody like he's but but their reason was and from a eugenics point of view they they believe that if they prevented these people from who with any of those kind of criteria when I say these people that's what I mean um from having children then they could lessen the prevalence of those things in society so right if you have low IQ and we prevent you from having kids we'll have less people with low IQ in our society and that'll get rid of a problem I guess so that individual who has that final say if you believe them when they say they they're doing this for the good of society that's that, one, and that would that's be his argument thing. yeah right like i can say okay even if i believe that they genuinely if i believe them that they believe that that's one thing <laughs> right but you can still look back on those things and say that's screwed up Oh, I hope we do. Right. So, yeah. So that's where I'm. Uh, yeah. So yeah. Well, that's kind of progress. I guess that's like the medical field is a scientific field. So you would just you would expect looking through history that there have been things that we've changed with new knowledge. Like we don't do that that anymore. Right. But then I always kind of think too about, you know, if these people and, and this is a this is a lot of different institutions from you know different stories from history this this era pretty common like is it the responsibility of the institutions later on decades later do they owe i hear people wanting apologies or restitutions Mm -hmm. that kind of pops in my head now where it's like okay well i i i cannot decipher whether or not they had the good intentions i hope they did i hope that was the best science at the time but now do they owe an apologies right does the government owe right like the people who worked there did should they so in this case, the government has uh, issued an apology, the government yeah. of Alberta, and some people have received medi- or, uh, financial restitution well, they because they sued. I don't think there was like a overarching everybody who was sterilized got this much money. I don't think, mm-hmm. um, but it, rather a couple of people sued and that actually probably was the impetus to ending the program also. I th- really, I think there's a, like it doesn't hurt like whether they should have to apologize or not i don't know if i have an answer to that but it doesn't hurt to apologize yeah and that's and, that has been done in this case yeah and it's kind of the if you want to um bring maybe a loaded term in but like that's a the first step in reconciliation is a 
apologizing acknowledging kind acknowledging of. that that was and an apology some is often an acknowledgement that wrong was done or right there wouldn't be anything to apologize for yeah but this this is this conversations make me wonder what we're doing today what kind of institutions or programs do we use today that we're going to be apologizing for in 50 uh-huh. years I want to get there, but I have one more thing before we go there. <laughs> okay. um, I mentioned this lady, Carolyn Renak Wolf. She wrote this article that I read a very small snippet of was in response to um, Donald Trump's claims that we should reopen institutions for people. And he was talking about the aftermath of a mentally ill person who shot up uh, a place. And this person was dealing with gender dysphoria but his response was that if only we had mm-hmm. in, like these people used to be off the street Locked and up. not in community so that, you know, I don't, I don't want to miss in label what Donald Trump's words exactly were, but the idea being if we still had places where these kind of people could be put away, then we wouldn't have shootings like this. So her article was kind of in response to that saying, well, we definitely need more care for mentally ill, but institutionalization is not the answer. Right. And here's why from history, very bad things happened. We don't want to repeat that, but there's a true statement that mentally ill people are struggling and we need to support them. So how could we do that differently? This segment is brought to you by Veldheisen Construction. They have been building incredible homes for over 30 years. The Veldheisen team will guide you step-by-step through the design and build process. The finished product will be your design, your selections, your beautiful home. If you're looking to build in central or northern Alberta, call today to get started. Go to veldheisen.ca or see the show notes to get in touch. Othering is a phenomenon in which some individuals or groups are defined and labeled as not fitting in within the norms of a social group. It is an effect that influences how people perceive and treat those who are viewed as being part of the in-group versus those who are seen as being part of the out-group. Othering also involves attributing negative characteristics to people or groups that differentiate them from the perceived normative social group. It is an us-versus-them way of thinking about human connections and relationships. This process essentially involves looking at others and saying, they are not like me, or they are not one of us. Othering is a way of negating another person's individual humanity, and consequently those that are are, have or have been othered are seen as less worthy of dignity and respect. On an individual level, othering plays a role in the formation of prejudices against people and groups. On a larger scale, it can also play a role in the dehumanization of entire groups of people, which can then be exploited to drive changes in institutions, governments, and societies. It can lead to the persecution of marginalized groups, the denial of rights based on group identity, or even acts of violence against others. Othering can be thought of as an antonym of belonging. Where belonging implies acceptance and inclusion of all people, othering suggests intolerance and exclusion. Othering is often subtle and may involve unconscious assumptions about others. Here are some signs of this phenomenon. Attributing positive qualities to people who are like you and negative qualities to people who are different from you. Believing that people who are different from you or your social group pose a threat to you or your way of life. Feeling distrustful or upset with people of a social group even though you don't know anyone from that group. Refusing to interact with people because they are different from you or your social group. Thinking that people outside your social group are not as intelligent, skilled, or as special as you and your group. Thinking of people only in terms of their relationship with specific social groups without giving any thought to them as individuals. This phenomenon often happens without conscious or effort or even awareness. People feel bias based on what they presume is the norm. While othering is sometimes apparent, it often functions as an almost invisible barrier that keeps people who are seen as outsiders from accessing opportunity and acceptance. Often othering can be based on a wide range of attributes, including age, disability, ethnicity, nationality, and race, gender identity or sex, language, occupation, political affiliation, religion, sexual orientation, 
skin color, or socioeconomic status. So that section about othering I read is from an author named Kendra Cherry on the Very Well website. And I think it fits in because when I think of the history of Michener Center, there was some othering happening in order to institutionalize people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there would be other examples of institutionalization that would include othering, residential schooling, probably the prison system in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. I just read a sorry, it was on a podcast actually. There was like a, a Texas school for troubled boys back yeah. in the same era that. Uh, yeah, and what made me think about the there's a lot of abuse and things like that that happen at the school and a lot of calls for apology and stuff. Um, but anyway, I when you first started talking about othering, my initial I don't know Tyler if you were starting to think about like do I do this to people? But that's what I was doing right away. Where I was no. like, well, who do I other? No, Tyler. Tyler just <laughs> went to get a drink. Um, no, but like at first I I thought like no, I don't think I do that. Like I don't think I, I think I'm pretty fair. But it didn't take very long before I started realizing that, of course, I do. Um, maybe not so much. Like when you mentioned like political affiliation, that was a that was a big one. That was one yeah. where I do that subconsciously or consciously. Yeah. Uh, if I see <laughs> I other people with bumper stickers on their trucks, <laughs> you othered them. <laughs> Does that make sense? Like they othered themselves. Oh boy! Yeah. Oh, interesting. That's true. They really do. So I don't know, like, do you, is it possible, is it possible to be a human being and not other? Well, that's, yeah, I was having the same, same feelings. Maybe earlier on, almost right away, I knew that, oh, man, I, I other people for sure. Um, but it's, I think the othering in 2023, I think is less institutional mm-hmm. and more personal. Mm-hmm. Or like it's happening all the time in a whole bunch of different ways instead of very clear um, systemic ways, maybe. And I'm not saying there isn't any systemic or institutional othering happening, but even just thinking about the changes with like the Michener Center, I think there can still be othering um, happening to the the people who access those services, it just looks very different than it did in the seventies. Yeah. Whereas they would be, they'd have their own little community in a small piece of red deer, and they'd be kind of locked up there, um, not free to leave. But now that doesn't mean they're not othered by people who see them at the mall or right, right. Like the othering is just happening, kind of like micro. Micro othering. Micro othering. <laughs> micro othering. Like the, yeah, like bumper stickers. Like I for sure have assumptions about people with certain bumper stickers. And it's going to, it's, yeah. You, do you think that like the, this, the I, I agree with you. Do you think that the transition from the institutionalized governmental, whatever, othering into the more personal, there's like the pushback to that? Like it's people mm. who are now being told, like forced to kind of reckon with that. And those people might call that like, like call that being woke maybe in some ways. There's almost like people, like they're forced to deal with something that like a, a, a belief they had. And now that the institutions are, are telling them to, it's not right anymore. There's like, there's like anger about that. It's like, well, back in the day, there's like this traditional, not traditional, but like the way that they've seen the world. Does that make any sense or not really? Like, well, for for the, that specific, like uh, a person like that who now may treat whatever group we're talking about poorly because they like, oh, back in the day we didn't have to mm-hmm. go to school with kids like you or deal with um, this group. I would other that person. Like right. I would have assumptions about that person now mm-hmm. and before I really get to know them or I would have an assumption that they belong to a certain political affiliation because of that. So I, you're no different, Tyler. I know. You're well, that's that, too. Is that that's what, yeah, makes saying. sense. Yeah. Like, so I agree again with you that I think there is an element of that. The people who want to go, well, it was better back then. So now they're, 
they're going to other people in a different way because the institution is no longer there. But now there is a counter pushback, push forward. Mm. Well, if you're not going to accept the new way of welcoming people, then we're not going to welcome you. Mm hmm. I don't know if there's a correlation or causation, but there's many more homeless people on the streets in Red Deer now. Is there a relationship between institutionalization or deinstitutionalization and an increase in homeless? Like, I, that's a question I have. I have no evidence to back that up, but I, I wonder that. But let's say um, the, the homeless population is a group that I don't want to other, like, but I might sometimes mm -hmm, personally. Right. Mm -hmm. How do I include a person in community? Like the, to me, the antidote or the antonym to othering, according to that article, is belonging. And I totally agree with that. Mm -hmm. But if it's up to us as a community to help people to belong, like feeding somebody a meal at the mustard seed is nice, but it's not necessarily belonging. Like what are real steps to not othering somebody besides well, like my mind going, okay, I'm going to be nice to them. I don't, and again, I don't, without doing any research specific to this, removing the institution and then not replacing it with anything. Mm -hmm. Or, or underfunding. Or, like, yeah, and, yeah, exactly. Like, you've, you still need to, whatever you were trying to do with that institution, you still need to deal with the, the issue that you were trying to deal with. Just I, do it in a better way. I assume that that writer who you quote earlier about the Donald Trump quote, I assume that's what they were talking about. Yeah. Like they're saying, actually there are many ways that we yeah. have shown, but it costs money. Yeah. It costs money. Yeah. So early access to mental health therapies, community involvement, family supports. So when I think of like a family who may have dropped a kid off in 1923 to the provincial training school, there was probably a feeling of desperation that they didn't know how to, raise a child that was very different that that's like i'm just trying to imagine what mm -hmm. what are these parents going through what does this look like a hundred years ago wow that's hard to believe that when they get to that building on the top of the hill what are they what is going through their mind like it isn't that they don't love their kid i don't think maybe for some people it is but in general i think it's just we need help and we don't know where to go the government says this is what we should do yeah. so what does the government say now or what does community say now when you have somebody that you're not sure how to care for, do you get supports as a family? Do you, who steps up? What, you know, and that's just one example, but then what if you have, you know, drug issues or, mm -hmm. and I hope society is also like, when we know better, we do better that we're trying to find what works. And, you know, part of the social contract, I guess is like, we're, there's tax money and there's um, people who make decisions and literally segregate. Like when you segregate people and then say the goal of segregating them is to integrate them, to prepare you for that, like, life. That just makes no sense. Right. Well, right. It's like the modern prison system. Right. It's, the same. it's like, yeah, you hear many things yeah. about like they get, they just, they just get more ingrained in their well, way of life. In let's prison. lock you up with everybody else who is a criminal. Yeah. Chances that you're going to come out not being criminal are low. Not Tim Robbins. That's right. Is that the actor's name? Yeah. Thanks. It's good. Good guy. It's a good guess. Were there? Do you know in Canada when maybe you came across this in your research? But when the Mitcher Center closed, was it similar across the board in Canada? It was it all in step kind of thing? Like we kind of came to the same conclusion at the same time? Yeah. So at the time in 2013, so there was acts of newspaper articles and a shout out to the Red Deer archives because they have every, if you give them a topic, they have taken microfiche of all the newspaper articles about that topic and put them in order and printed them out and like pasted them on cardstock so you can flip through. So there was hundreds of articles about Michener Center over the years, all kinds of stuff. But one of the things that kind of showed over this time where everything from like the way the unions were working um, stories and, but a real story in 2013 about families who wanted 
the mentioned to stay open. Like they had family members there who were being cared for in a way that they couldn't provide that kind of level of care. And so they were fighting. I think it was called friends of Michener. They still might even have a Facebook page. Um, and they were kind of demanding picketing, writing letters. They had an organized way of saying, please keep this open for our family members because this is where they belong. And like, and when I say belong, like they have a sense of belonging, not like, that's where they belong, but like in a positive way. Yeah, they belong, um, yeah. But at that time, there were two other institutions. I think one in one in Quebec for sure, and I think the other was Nova Scotia that were still open. And but I think they closed similarly around the same time. Okay. So there were hundreds before, and now there's zero, basically. Did you come across any sort of information or data with correlation or causation with? homeless populations as i a, haven't looked into that I, yeah. it's definitely something i'd be interested to pursue and because hmm. i'm sure there is a connection to that but yeah yeah So here's where I get to after the things we've talked about. Thanks for your participation in this. I think it's a hard topic to think back to things that we've done in the past. What's easy to do is to put our um, sensibilities or judgment calls on them and say, oh, that was done. That was mishandled. Um, this is what should have happened. And then by doing that, we might even overlook the othering we're doing now, the othering I'm doing now. So my question to you now would be, can everybody be included like legitimately in community? Is there a place for everybody? Is that possible in the same community? Yeah, maybe, maybe not. Cause we keep talking about these and we talked a bit off, off mic about this where it's like, it's always, it's just so hard. Like there's no easy solution sometimes. And so, the answer to that question, I'm going to have to defer to Tyler because I think <laughs> he, <laughs> he has thought about it. Well, I think, well, you just bought me another like 20 seconds That's to think was, about I it. Got so, you. Yeah. Um, I do think the, the, the challenge of the question is like, what is the, the scope of community? Like, is it everybody included in every community or can everybody have a community that they belong to? To what extent and, can we include people in <laughs> I think we can do better than we're doing. Hmm. But I, I don't know, even if we go back to the example of homelessness or the, the kind of the cross or the intersection of mental health and homelessness and um, people who are struggling with that, I don't know if, like it's easy to identify like a system that didn't work or that was right. not the right way to do it but it's way harder to think of a, a way to help people struggling with mental health to find a sense of belonging that does work. That's the hard part. But I think, I think it's possible to find a way for people struggling with mental health to find a sense of belonging within their family and within a certain size of community. But I don't know if they if everybody will feel like they're part of every community. Sure. And I don't know. So my short answer is I don't, my, I'm leaning towards no to your question. Uh, I don't actually think this, but what if could Michener, could you run it the same way with modern knowledge, scientific knowledge, right? They're, they're in community. They're being supported. Like, is there, I don't think there is, but is there, is there a way to run a facility like that uh, without the problems that they ran into? I saw. Or, or is the problem just on its face? Is the problem institutionalization and right. separation? Yeah. Which I saw. I, which and I think it is, but I, but I just, you know. I saw that they are doing something like that for um, patients with Alzheimer's. I think it's in Scandinavia somewhere. They mm -hmm. have like a little village mm -hmm. it's Wait. contained it's because it's contained. as people are losing their faculties they can't escape quote unquote or right. get in danger but it is but it might have like a barber shop and a shopping center yeah. and a yeah but yeah. they are institutionalized they're institutionalized 
and being cared for. Well, and when, when Michener was no longer, okay. So I need to admit too that until probably 2000, I thought Michener like the idea of institutionalization was because of my own family history of people who worked there and had stories about how it was successful was a good thing for the community, like a positive thing that helped people gave them purpose, trained them in certain ways and they were safe and Mm -hmm. belonged. Like I, I thought of that as a positive thing. It wasn't till I heard more of those stories of abuse, neglect, and actually questioning whether they were doing what their vision or mission was that made me think. But anyways, before they tore the buildings down, I thought, oh, could they not use this for putting all of Red Deer's homeless in or putting Alzheimer's patients that I wondered. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting the city decided we're tearing this down. Like this won't be a place where we institutionalize people. The, the specifics for Michener, man, it was a huge place. Huge. Uh, you know, just that demolition would have been extensive. I just, it's hard to... Well, and to think it had more employees than Red Deer Public School or the college or Nova or... That's something else. Yeah. It's a big it's deal. Probably a lot, a lot of stories. <laughs> a lot of experiences, a lot of stories in those what archives. If, what if the amount of people who were, were employed and the amount of funding that went into making that place run was you took that exact same amount and just re reallocated those those people and mm-hmm. those services into 2023 services for um people with mental health conditions and like would what would that look like yeah what would that look like if you took the same investment and just did it in a, a way that's appropriate. Well, and I know there's huge investment by the government in yeah. mental. I just, I have but no idea it what it, or right. Is it, I, like yeah. what is, would it compare? I have no idea about that. Well, I think I may drive past that on my home t- tonight. Maybe take a little walk in the field. It's a beautiful area. Do you know what they're going to do with it now? Well, it's being returned to parkland basically, but it's a future site, I think for a, an aquatic center, maybe. Oh, really? So I, when I recorded the cold open, I was standing outside that fence looking mm-hmm. in and I, <laughs> there was a guy in a truck because they're doing all this demolition, right? And now the buildings are all gone, but he was just like staring at me like, what are you doing here? <laughs> because I'm like with my phone talking, <laughs> looking through the fence. It was kind of weird. But yeah, you can go up to the fence. Yeah. Hey, before we, before I know we're really close to the end, I just want to clarify what I said before. I feel yeah. kind of weird about the way I answered your question that started this segment. Oh. Also, I feel like I'm the only one who tried to answer it, but like, That's is true. it <laughs> well, the question I, as I understood it was, is it possible for everyone to feel a sense of belonging? Well, that's kind of, I didn't say it. Okay. That and then I, yes. kinda, I just remember I you said, said no. my short answer is no, <laughs> yeah. but I want to just clarify. That doesn't mean I don't want that. Mm-hmm. Like I do think it is hypothetically possible, but practically very 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 unlikely so it's like it's like a goal it's a goal that i think we should be working towards but i think as people the problem is going to be not that we don't want us people to feel like they belong it's just that we have a problem with accepting people we have a problem with othering we have an accepting problem like that's that i don't think we can overcome that's the are there enough i feel i feel better about saying that than just saying no the way I said well, it. Yeah. You, so I, I was just going to say that exact thing. So I think that's good. Like we're on the same page. <laughs> <laughs> I, and I think, well, I know in my work, I work with a lot of people whose role is belonging, seeking belonging. Like my, we can leave it at this, but are there enough people in community who believe in belonging to make up for those that other? Well, hopefully we can tip the scales Food for at some that. point. Yeah. Well, we're sitting around my living room and when the host gets their turn to do the podcast, they ask for a recommendation and or a confession from the other two gentlemen. Mm -hmm. So before we do that, I should mention that Tyler and I had the privilege of seeing Graham's band, The Fallow Years, Mm -hmm. play live at Bose this week. Mm -hmm. It's pretty awesome. 
I felt very Was happy. it amazing for you? We never really talked to you about that, but yeah. I mean, to be honest, like the, the, the coolest part was like you guys being there and other friends being there was like really a, like a community support feeling. I, I thought I'd be nervous playing on the EPOs because I've wanted to do that for a long time, but I, I didn't feel nervous. I think mostly because it was like the people out there were people that I knew and loved. And mm. yeah, it was a really cool, like, I don't, know, I don't know the word for it, but I just felt very warm. The community felt very warm. And so thank you guys for going. It sounded really amazing. Cool. You guys yeah. Are very yeah, it was awesome. Very supportive. And um, yeah, it was fun. We'll do it again sometime, I think. Maybe open for another I band. I hope so. And the other bands too, Small Paul and Altamita were both really good too. They were really great. Yeah. Uh, yeah, thanks, you guys. I'll start with this, Chris. I, I don't have a confession today, but I have a recommendation. Do you ever just feel like m- new movies kind of suck? Do you ever feel like that? Mm-hmm. Do you ever yeah. think back to the 80s and it's like, why can't they make movies like that again? Like, they're fun. They don't take themselves too seriously. There's not as much CGI nonsense. It's just like, they're just good movies. Just good stuff. So my wife and I, she'll remain nameless in this segment, <laughs> but we watched the newest Mission Impossible last night. Uh, and it, it felt like I was watching a movie from the 80s again. Oh, I thought you were going to say you didn't like it, but you're obviously recommending Loved it. it. Yeah. It's awesome. And I didn't think I... I mean, they've been good. The series has been pretty good overall, like despite how many there are. And this one, I just heard it was good. And like right away, I just felt like this is just a fun, stupid, but also amazing action movie. And I highly recommend it. Check it out. Okay. You saw it, Chris? Yeah, I loved it. Isn't that great? Loved it. And it was like totally unapologetic. It's like the mystery key item was like actually a key. Like it just, it didn't, you know what I mean? Like it didn't need to be. Yeah. There's no MacGuffins. It's just boom, go for it. And it's like the set pieces and oh my goodness. And also Tom Cruise. Is he actually like no spoilers? There's some spoilers. Like it's about AI, but is it possible Tom Cruise is like a cyborg? There were some scenes where his face looked a little puffy. (laughs) Yeah. No, I know exactly what you mean. But I mean, the dude's pushing 60 doing this stuff. I mean, it's like, whatever you can age. That's fine. He's, he looks great, but I think it's the amount of HGH he's on. Like it just (laughs) kind of puffs up your eyelids. There are chemicals in there, but (laughs) if you haven't seen it, there's a stunt that he actually does for real. (laughs) That's like the director told him not to do it. Actually, if you watch some of that behind the scenes stuff. Yeah. I think Xenu kept him safe. (laughs) (laughs) Xenu an actual like deity. Isn't Xenu the Scientology god? Alien guy? Oh, I didn't know they had a god. I don't know. Cool. Do you know the story of Scientology? I'll tell you later. I have a book for you. I'm interested. We could do a podcast. Uh, I have a confession. Um, My feet are really filthy. I don't know if you guys have noticed. I did kind of can't believe you came into my house like that. I know. That's that's my confession. That's why I thought your carpet was new. He's like, I'm like, how old is this carpet that I'm putting my terribly dirty feet? And I've been trying to like not let you see them. I feel kind of like I'm in junior high again when I'd come home and my mom would get mad at me for, for running around without shoes on. And that's I, that's what I was doing before this. We were playing volleyball out, outside um, without shoes But it just on. looks so like I summer feet to it's, me. Like when you mow the lawn or you're out, like, you know, you're at the beach without shoes. Like, yeah, that's but just I'm, at, I'm like. at someone else's house and but I'm an adult. October. And <laughs> I wore shoes. I played volleyball too. Yeah. So, Chris, I'm sorry. Oh, I, z- I don't think I've made any footprints, but I feel no I feel problem. Bad. That's funny, though. Well, speaking of destroying Chris's home, thank you for hosting tonight. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That was super great. Um, I don't think we had any like official feedback we wanted to share right now. We did hear from a number of listeners that they really missed your intro, Chris, mm. Yeah. in the last episode. And so it made a triumphant return tonight and we'll continue on moving forward. We are very sorry if it offended you. Maybe a Patreon item could be the actual opening for the 101st episode that nobody got to hear. If you had, if suggest- you're willing to like, oh, no, I have one. Oh, you have one. Okay. Yeah, I've got one. You should record it and email it to anybody who requests it. <laughs> yeah, okay. You know? We'll do it. Yeah. Email it as a little MP3. Email it to what, Ty? Or to who? Well, in order to receive this, you'll have to email us at harmoniousgentleman at gmail.com or interact with us on social media. Mm-hmm. I got Snapchat just on, like, not, Did you really? not with the uh, podcast, it's but great. personally. Is yeah. it? I, use I it was so confused by it's it. how my I family like turned it off. It's basically our family like chat is Snapchat. Okay. 
I am streets ahead of you guys. I am currently rocking threads and loving. <laughs> For how many times has that been mentioned on the podcast? At least three. Hey, I'm gonna. I'll start the gentleman threads account okay. and watch the likes roll in. The engagement just <laughs> is anybody using it like besides you and I, I i use it like i used twitter in the early days where i just followed a whole bunch of news sources so just check the, the news of the day i just flip through that and there's not a whole lot else that i really use it for yeah okay maybe hockey scores but maybe you guys don't want to hear about that right now anyway that's really the cool episode <laughs> thanks for listening everyone and going on this strange new adventure with the harmonious gentlemen Gentlemen